Would you remain standing for the reading of God's word from Psalm 139? You could find it in your bulletins. You could read along in your own Bibles. Psalm 139. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You hem me in, behind and before, and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high, I cannot attain it. Where shall I go from your spirit, or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me, and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me, and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me. When as yet there was none of them. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I would count them, they are more than the sand. I awake and I am still with you. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. O men of blood, depart from me. They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. I count them my enemies. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. See if there be any grievous way in me. And lead me in the way everlasting. Would you please be seated and would you join me in a word of prayer? Father in heaven, we thank you this morning for your word through the mouth of the psalmist David. We ask that you would use your word, which is active and living, that you would use it to penetrate deep into our hearts, that the things which we cling to in this world, that even our rebellion and sin against you that we would be dispossessed of those things and cling to the cross of Jesus Christ. We thank you. We thank you that you've blessed us through him and we ask this morning that your spirit would be at work here among your people. We ask all of this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. Before we look at the passage, let me just give you a few brief words of introduction. First of all, we're going through the Psalms this summer, at least some of them, not all of them. 
Uh, beginning August 20th, uh, we'll be in the book of Romans, and that will be at least uh, for 18 months. We'll do that together, and uh, that will be a fun and exciting endeavor for uh, the whole congregation. My name is Brian Rigg. I'm one of the pastors here. You saw Stephen Hobson, one of our elders. If you have questions, we'll be up front afterwards. We'd love to answer any of your questions. And I will simply tell you this. We're hopeful not to be outdoors next week, but we still don't know. Um, I wish I could tell you differently, uh, but we don't know. And so please uh, be on the lookout for emails and, and texts that will let you know where we're at next week and, uh, and how we're going to handle August the 13th. But this morning, we're in Psalm 139. And as I said, we've been looking through the Psalms this summer, analyzing the Word of God from the Psalms and how it confronts us on some of our most basic needs or most basic issues. So let me begin this morning with a little question. The question is simply this, um, what is an inch or what is a pound? How do we define those things? What is an inch or what is a pound? There's one uh, a pastor who is preaching on Psalm 139, and, and he asked that question, what is an inch? What's a pound? And he gave a very simple but probing answer. He said, well, that's very simple. An inch is the distance between one mark and another mark on the ruler, okay? Or a pound is when the scale says one. That's what a pound is. It's, it's very simple. But he used that answer to illuminate some very important reality, that though these be fixed measures, they are ultimately predicated upon something else, right? Some standard of measurement that dictates distance or mass. And it also provokes then a, a very important question for us. How do we as human beings measure our lives? I would suggest to you this morning as we begin looking at this psalm that every person who has ever lived has some standard by which they measure their lives. It, it may be an unspoken standard. It may be a very corrupt standard, but there is some way that every human being evaluates ethics and morality and success and failure. It is simply what it means to be human, that evaluating process. So how do we evaluate our lives? See, in, in that way, uh, we are no more special than an inch or a pound, Right? And no more independent than an inch or a pound. How do we evaluate our lives? Well, the Bible calls us to introspection, to a looking inward and to evaluating the heart, right? What's going on in the heart? Why do we do the things that we do? Why do we think the ways that we think? Why are we prone or why do we have proclivities to certain ways? And Psalm 139, I think, is the most introspective of all the psalms that we read in the Psalter. It's a psalm of introspection, a psalm that looks inward and analyzes the human heart. Now, as you heard the psalm read aloud, you're probably thinking, well, this is a strange psalm. There are two sections to the psalm. The, the first part of the psalm begins by describing the character of God. That's verses 1 through 18. And the character of God in verses 1 through 18 is so marvelous and, and splendid. But then the psalm moves in verse 19 to begin to talk about the, the wickedness of man. And you might have been thinking, well, what does the character of God have to do with the wickedness of man? Why are these two things coupled together in Psalm 139? It's almost like an abrupt transition. The psalmist says, how vast are your thoughts, O God. They number like the grains of sand on the sea. And then he says, well, how wicked are the wicked. And you're, you're kind of abruptly wondering, what's the transition? What's very important, actually? Psalm 139 brings these two ideas together 
because we are being told and instructed through the psalm that the wickedness of man must be confronted with the character of God. Or I could put it another way, that we are prone to sin, that we're inclined to rebellion against God because we fail to see the characteristics of God. We fail to see His character. We're prone to sin because we misunderstand the living God in, in various ways, okay? So as we look at this psalm this morning, we're going to analyze the character of God through Psalm 139 as an answer, a solution, a response, a tool that will help us to confront the sin in our own hearts. So let's look at it. The first point this morning, very simply, is this. When we look at this psalm, we are confronted uh, with the, the superior power of the living God, the superior authority of the living God. I, I think you see that all over the psalm, but I want to begin by looking at verses 13 through 16. And we're not going chronologically through the psalm. We're going to go logically through the psalm. That is, one idea builds upon another. And I think verses 13 through 16 are the foundation for understanding the character of God through the rest of the psalm. So look at verses 13 through 16. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. See, in this part of the psalm, the psalmist begins with creation with the, the crafting of the human soul, with the building of a human being, and says there from the very beginning, the power of God was on display, and so his authority is from the beginning, for he is the one who has crafted us. He is the one who has made us. This section of the psalm is filled with sacred, holy powerful, superior words. If you were to take a moment and go through and just to highlight or underline all of the words that describe the creative power of God, you would be surprised to see how extensive this description actually is. In verse 13, when he begins, it says, for you formed my inward parts. The Hebrew word formed means to originate, to create, to begin. It is, it is the word that means to take nothing and to make some, something, Okay. For you originated my inward parts. You created me. You began me. And then it says, you knitted me together in my mother's womb. I love the Hebrew here in the second part of that verse. The actual Hebrew simply says this. In my womb, a blanket was made. In my womb, uh, in the womb, a blanket was made. And most of the commentators who, who look at that portion of the verse, they say, well, literally what it's saying is that there's a knitting, there's a sewing, there's a crafting, a, if you want to say needle and thread, however you want to look at it, there is a, a creative work that is going on in the womb that is like someone who is stitching together a blanket that, that God uses, needle and thread, invisible to us. For the crafting of the human and the human soul and the womb of the mother, how special that is. I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Fearful and wonderful. Two most important Hebrew words that connotate something that is sacred or set apart. 
It is holy. It is not like anything we experience in this world. It is not like the mundane or the usual. It is the very opposite. Sacred and holy, I am fearfully and wonderfully made. And it says, wonderful are your works. And that's actually a different word. It says wonderful twice here, but two different words. Wonderful are your works. That, that word means nearly impossible. Almost unfathomable. Like I can't comprehend that this is actually possible. Those are your works, O Lord God. In verse 16, I'm sorry, in verse 15, my frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. And you might be wondering, well, what, is it, what does the psalmist mean that the human being is being intricately woven in the depths of the earth? That's a, it's a strange phrase, but you see the, the psalmist is speaking not only about the, the crafting of the physical body, right? The knitting together of the organs and of the arms and of the legs and the, and the crafting of the mind, but the psalmist is also speaking about the soul, right? How does the soul begin? Where does it begin? It is mysterious to us. How does God create a soul? We know not. The mystery of his power is that he does so. That he has made even the parts of us which are unseen, which do not fill space and time, yet transcend the bounds of this world and last into eternity. See, the description here that the psalmist is giving of the creative power of God in crafting human beings is one that must move the church. And listen, we have to be aware of the fact that we're often being conformed by the world around us, that we're prone to look at human life as the product of biological processes, okay? That like man and woman come together and they have a child and there's nine-month gestation and the child's born. It's just an automatic process of science. This is how people are made. And that's the world around us beginning to conform us to the standards of the world. The Bible tells us that the human soul and body are crafted by the chief artist who is at work, right? Rendering and crafting and knitting and sewing, forming a human being with intentionality, with beauty and splendor. Let me say, first of all, I think we are prone to sin when we fail to acknowledge the supreme authority of God in his creative power. Now listen, what would it be like in the church if we were governed not by our own opinions, but if we were governed by the word of God in this? What would it be like? I think there would be a lot less division in the church. If we read the word of God and we said, okay, here it is, fearfully and wonderfully made, crafted, knitted, sewed, formed, it would define so much of the things that the church is divided over and we would have unity on these, on these issues that, that plague the church, right? Sanctity of life is an important one. You hear it in these words, don't you? It would fashion our opinions. It would form our conclusions about abortion, uh, about uh, the gender issues, right, that face us today. Uh, how would the gender issues be informed by an understanding that we are fearfully and wonderfully made, knitted together in the mother's womb, that every day was numbered by the Lord God, and he did this intentionally by the work of his hand? Right, there would be less division. There, one of the great problems that plagues the church today is that we do not believe in the supreme authority of the living God, Elohim, the creator. Amen. 
and beauty of this passage is that God's creating work begins in Genesis 1, but it's not only there, that, that every step of the way, His creative work is intentional, that just as He created in the beginning, so each day now He creates and He brings new life. And that God gives and He takes away and He forms and He knits and He's always constantly at work bringing new life that, that when a child is born, right? We had the beautiful illustration this morning. Jenny Perdue, she two months old, about, yeah, I'm in the ballpark, good. Knitted and crafted by the hand of God. I think about this when I think about foster care, okay? You, you guys know that our families involved with foster care. One of the most common things we hear when a new foster child comes into our home from our family and from people in the church and from people outside the church, they say, aren't you worried about the spiritual darkness that they bring into your home? I don't know why that bothers me more than most things do, but it bothers me. And I, my response is always something like, I'm not worried about it. As a matter of fact, they're fearfully and wonderfully made. Knitted together in their mother's womb, crafted by the hand of God. Their days have been numbered before even one of them has come to fruition. Right? And I'm not, what I'm not saying is that all of you got to go out and do foster care. I'm not saying that. What I am saying is that the word of God, I implore you, the word of God must shape the way that we look at the issues of our day. That we must be conformed to see the world around us and the people that we interact with and their needs and their wants and their brokenness. That, that we must be conformed according to the word, fearfully and wonderfully made, knitted together in our mother's womb. This psalm calls us to reject any human notion which, which would limit the authority of God and his love and his handiwork to lay aside human folly and the narrow conclusions that we make that we appeal to our instincts and return to the wisdom and the understanding given to us by God that it should shape our lives and our livelihood. Do we not believe that God is the creator of all life? Do we not believe it? Second thing I think we see in this psalm, and it builds upon the first conclusion, is that the eye of God is inescapable. I say the eye of God is inescapable, but I think we struggle to really explain or to capture all that is being described in the psalm. You think we could say, well, uh, nothing is outside of the purview of God, and yes, that's true, or nothing is outside of the authority of God, or yes, that's true. Uh, he's always moving. He always has authority. He always has power. He always sees all things. All of this is true and more. That the dominion and the authority of God has no bounds, and we, even that, we cannot comprehend exactly what that means. What does it mean to be boundless in dominion and authority? You can see some of the ways that that's described in this psalm, beginning in verse 1. Oh, Lord, you have searched me and you have known me. Oh, Lord, you have searched me and you have known me. I, when I read this verse, I was thinking, I was thinking this last week. We, last week, my family and I, we went to a concert in Roanoke. And um, as it is in, with big events, as you're entering into the concert venue, they tell you, okay, when you get to the front, we're going to be searching your bags. And I thought, well, this is interesting because I could see the front and there's only two people searching bags, but there's thousands of people trying to get in. I was just wondering how this is going to go. And, um, and you know, you, you, after a few minutes, you're like, I know how this is going to turn out. People are going to get tired and they're just going to push in and we'll see what happens. And sure enough, you know, a few minutes later, the two people who are searching bags, people start getting upset and they get angry and they just start pushing in past the people who are searching bags. And the two people searching bags are like, all right, 
go ahead, you know, uh, we told you to wait, we were not going to wait, you know, and I was just thinking there how hard or challenging it is to search thousands and thousands of people and, and how there's, there must be this margin for error where you're like, okay, if we get like 50% of them, we're good, okay? And I think that has to come into the equation when you're thinking about a venue like that. And, and then it just reminded me, it reminded me how, how limited our, our capacity is to search even the physical being of a human. And the Word of God tells us that He searches our hearts and He knows us. The beauty of this is that the knowledge of God is extensive enough to see the whole world and yet intimate enough to examine the inner recesses of our hearts, right? To be able to see in the heart of a human being. And when I say heart, I simply mean what's going on within you, right? And, and in a second, you'll see what all that entails. But uh, the word of God here says, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down you're acquainted with all my ways. Listen to this, verse 4. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. If you read the psalm in the right way, you find that not only does God know the things uh, that are maybe more public or obvious, He knows the hidden things. He knows the thoughts that precede the words. He knows the thoughts that never manifest as words. He knows the thoughts that precede the thoughts that lead to words, okay? He knows the, th the inclinations of the heart. He knows the things about us that we don't even know about ourselves, right? When we're confused, like, I don't know what's going on in my heart. God knows what's going on in the heart. He knows the quirky voices, right, in your mind. He, he knows the things you think about other people. He knows the things you think about him. He knows the things that never come to fruition, that never come out. He knows the things that even though we posture ourselves publicly one way, that we're thinking another way in our hearts. He knows the very things that are going on within us from the past and from the future. He knows us intimately, perfectly, without fail. And yet he loves us. Think not only this, but David confesses in this psalm a very important, important confession that not only is God's knowledge and understanding of us boundless, but when we compare ourselves to Him, we're actually the very opposite. For as boundless as He is, so we are limited. And that's what it says in verse 6, such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high, I cannot attain it. You might be wondering, well, what's the knowledge? What does David mean that such knowledge is too wonderful for me? It's high, I cannot attain it. He means the, the knowledge and wisdom that he's be, just been describing, that, that God perceives all things, that he knows the heart of every human being, that he can see intimately and yet broadly, that he does this all simultaneously. David is saying, these things are too wonderful for me. I cannot understand it. We, we, we can't even wrap our mind. I mean, we don't comprehend all things, let alone trying to wrap our mind around what it is like to comprehend all things. What it is like to know everything simultaneously and let yet intimately and perfectly. That's what David is saying in verse 6. He says it again in, in verse 17. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I would count them, they are more than the sand. I awake and I am still with you. I love that phrase, I'm awake and I'm still with you. And you read it and you're like, what? 
What do you mean I'm awake and I'm still with you? And if you go, if, if you had the Hebrew, you'd take it out and you'd read. It's just this little, short little phrase. And it's kind of like uh, uh, that I'm dreaming and then I'm shaken awake. And the commentator said, you know, this is, a, this is a colloquial phrase that means like somebody who drifts off and they're like, whoa, like they're, they're woken again. And, and it seems as if the psalmist is saying, like, I'm trying to wrap my mind around it, and then I, like, almost pass out because my mind can't comprehend. I'm like, whoa, God is so great. I can't wrap my mind around it. He's, his, I, his mind is vast and immeasurable. That's what David says here this morning in Psalm 139. Let me say to you, I, I think as we think about the inescapable, the inescapable knowledge of God that we are prone to sin when we fail to acknowledge his discernment and understanding. Just think about it. These two ideas, they have to go hand in hand, okay? So the affirmation of the indiscernible, boundless knowledge and understanding of the living God, that coupled together with the idea that we are not like that, okay? These two things together are important for unveiling the deception of the human heart, okay? Because most of us are inclined to think of ourselves as having sort of this divine knowledge that God has, right? We, we know what's going on in other people's hearts, right? I know what they meant when they said that. I know what they were trying to do. Yeah, it leads us down bad roads, doesn't it, okay? Well, I know how this is going to work out, right, as if we've seen the end of the matter, okay? Uh, I know what's going on, even in my own human heart, really, you really think you know what's going on in your heart. Oftentimes, we make conclusions as, as if we have some divine perspective, right? And there's a problem with that. The, the psalmist in Psalm 139 is leading us down a pathway that says, you are God and I am not. You comprehend and I do not. It leads me to a place of dependence. And let me tell you, there are many errors that have crept into the church based upon these conclusions that are man-centric versions of God and of this life and of this world that are based upon feeling and thinking, right? I think God is like this. I feel like God is like that. And what, what happens, you can find it. You can find it in Bible studies. You can find it in homes. You can find it in churches. That, that, that Christians will pick up the word of God and they'll read something about the living God that he says about himself and they'll say, well, that's strange. That doesn't quite seem right, right? And the next line that inevitably always comes is something like this. That can't be right. I feel like God must be. You know, fill in the blank. I don't think God is like that. I don't think God would do that, okay? And they begin to craft this version of God that they think is rooted in his word, but is built upon a faulty human assumption that does not affirm the godness of God and the faultiness or the brokenness of humanity. You could see this, if you were to just take a step back and you were to examine all of the sort of large dominating movements of the last 100 years, you can see this in all of these movements and sort of their affirmations of, of who God is and, and what this life is, right? Think about like uh, feminism in the 1960s and 70s. God is a woman, right? That was the, the you know, the, the push within feminism. God is a woman and life is all about oppression, Okay? That was like the, 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 again, the movement of the mid-1900s. You can think about academics. God is a myth, 
And therefore, life is all sort of the random, random working together of certain events, okay? That's the academic perspective. You can think about the, uh, the, the sort of liberal movements in sexuality in our culture, right? Uh, that they would say God is uh, maybe trans or that God is maybe uh, homosexual. I've heard that before, okay? And, um, and, and because he's that, then life is all about pleasure. You could think about the other conclusions that have been made about God. Hollywood, God is my homeboy. You've heard that. And life is all the derivative of the arts. Uh, you could find this in uh, liberal, progressive Western America. Uh, God is an African sage, and life is all about fighting against traditional religion. You could find it in conservative Western America. God is a white American, and life is all about fighting against, you know, uh, the political powers, okay? And what's the problem with all that? The problem with all that is that those are conclusions about God and life based upon my intuition and feeling. I think, I feel, I believe, I want. But that won't work. It doesn't work. I mean, you try it, it doesn't work. You may think God is however he is, but God is regardless of what you think of him. And there's a very important reason why it won't work. Okay, remember, this is what verse 6 says. As such knowledge, that is knowledge of God and knowledge of this life and knowledge of things that are eternal, such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high, I cannot attain it. The Westminster divines, they said it like this. The distance between God and man is so great. It is so great. That although reasonable creatures, that's us, though, though we owe him obedience, we could never have any fruition of him but by voluntary condescension. What does that mean? It means you could never understand God and this world and this life and who God is and what he's doing. You could never understand that but God come down to you and reveal himself in his word and commune with you. And dwell among us. Okay? So the psalm tells us about the inescapable nature of God. We're prone to sin when we fail to acknowledge that God is who he says he is. And we are who he says we are. Deviate from that to your own peril. Finally, I think last thing to note in this psalm, God's divine authority and his divine discernment, they produce divine activity. They produce divine activity. How often have you, as you've read a passage like this, how often have you heard it said, and this is a common phrase, okay, um, watch out when you're do, what you're doing in secret because God sees you. Okay, have, you've heard that before, right? Something like that. There's a version like that that all of our parents told us, okay, right? You laugh because you know. That the all-seeing, all-knowing, all-powerful, boundless God sees us, and the conclusion we often make is that because he sees and he knows and he is ever-present, the conclusion that we often make is that this leads to condemnation. And that's fair. There's a part of that. Sin does not escape the vision of God. But one of the things we see in the psalm so beautiful 
is that the discernment and the vision and the power and the boundless nature of God manifests itself in divine action. That his all-knowing omniscience is not for condemnation of his people, but it is by design the beginning of a divine movement of redemption where he moves towards us. And isn't that amazing? Yes, it is. As much as this psalm is describing the power and the omniscience and the omnipresence of the living God, we can't help but miss the personal qualities of God that are described here. We heard it in verses 13 through 16. He intricately wove. He formed us. He fashioned us. He created us. He crafted us, right? He numbered our days. Every one of those words is personal, I think it's the only place you read in all Scripture of a God who knits, okay? You'll never again hear about God knitting. The only place. Because that is so personal and loving and caring. God knits us together in our mother's womb. But what's more, it's really all over the psalm. If you look, for instance, at verse 10. Okay, verse 10 uh, uh, verse 9 transitions us to verse t- 10. and verse 9 it says, If I take the wings of the morning, if I dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, and we're expecting the psalmist to say, even there you'll be, right? That's even probably the way you remember this psalm. If I go to Sheol, there you are, God. If I'm in the, the depths of the sea, there you are. But that's not what he says. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me. And your right hand shall hold me. See, it's not enough for the psalmist to say, well, God's there. He's present there because he's present there. He is. But the psalmist says, when I go there, even there, your hand shall lead me. And your right hand will uphold me. That the omnipresence and the omniscience of God is moving towards divine action that is upholding and saving and redeeming and reconciling and moving towards in compassion and love a people that he has loved and numbered since before the creation of the world. This is what the psalmist means at the end of the psalm. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. See if there be any grievous way in me. You're like, wow, that's a, that's a, a weighty question to ask, David. It is a very big thing you've just asked. And be careful, but the last verse here, and lead me in the way everlasting. Yes, David, he has known your heart. He has seen you and he knows you. He knows everything about you, and he will lead you in the way everlasting. Let me just say this, and then we'll wrap up here. If it was only the omniscience and the omnipotence and the omnipresence, the all-knowing, boundless power of the living God, if that's all there was, there would be no comfort in that. Actually, as a matter of fact, it would be the very opposite. It would be very discomforting. It would be terrible, awesome, scary but, but thankfully, that's not where it stops. The boundless nature of God is directed towards his people. And, and, and this is where introspection, this is an introspective psalm, this is where introspection leads us. Not only do we look in and we see our own sin, but we see, when we look in, we, as Christians, we see great encouragement. When, when we look inward, we see the Spirit of God at work within us. 
that his hand is leading us, that his right hand is upholding us. And we look inward, we see that sometimes the hand of God is heavy upon us when we're wayward. And he's directing us and forcing us and pushing us back to the cross. When our heart is faltering, the hand of God is upon us, drawing us back to him seeking us out and searching for us. When we look inward, we see our own hearts. We see the God who tries and knows our thoughts, sees that there is grievous sin within us. And then we cry out, lead me in the way everlasting. And when we do that, we shift from looking inward to our own fickle, faltering, weak hearts. And we look outward to the cross. And there at the cross really is where we find our answer. Right? Because then when we see the cross of Christ, we realize that the omniscience and the omnipresence of the boundless God is not the end in of itself. But it is because God formed us and because God knows us and he really knows us. I mean, he knows the us that we don't want other people to know. He knows the gross us, the sick us, the broken us. The us that's hidden. He knows us and he knows our need. That's that's why the omniscience of God is so important. The wisdom of God that he sees the heart and he says, I know exactly what you need. And he leads us in the way everlasting by providing a savior for us. It's the beauty of the introspection. You look inward, you see what God sees, and now you know why God has moved on your behalf. Now you know why he sent his son. Now you know why his spirit is at work. Now you know why he has moved on your behalf to lead you in the way everlasting, to eternal life. It's the beauty of the gospel. That's the reason why Psalm 139 is safe. It is good. It is good for us to see that through the cross, the power of God is manifest as our hope. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we come before you this morning. We thank you, Lord God, that you are not only the God who sees all and knows all and controls all and exercises dominion and power and authority, but you're the God who uses that dominion and authority for the good of your people. For you who have given us your son, how will you not also with him, give us all good things. And there is nothing that can separate us then from the love of Christ Jesus. I am convinced of this. Nothing in all of creation. And so we thank you, our Father, that your power and your might has now been directed in movement of compassion and love and hopefulness through your son, Christ Jesus, that you knew us and you knew how great was our need, how deep was our desperation, how extensive was our brokenness. You know even the sin in our hearts that we do not know and how desperate and needy we are. And you came to us and you saved us.
We thank you, our Father. We thank you for your Son. We thank you for your Spirit, and we pray that your Spirit would now be at work here among your people. Lord, would you give us clearer eyes and vision to understand the world around us through your word? Would you make us to be your representatives here? Would you cause us to glorify you with our mouths and with our actions and with our hearts? And today, our Father, would you be honored? We love you and we thank you. In the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, we ask all of this. Amen.